Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. The scripture reading for this Easter weekend is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. This passage will be quoted by Matthew in our passage for our sermon, and it's also a very appropriate reflection on Easter and the whole Good Friday Easter weekend, as it spends a lot of time looking at the suffering on our behalf and what Christ accomplished for us. But at that end, verses 10 to 12, there is a glimpse, a prediction of that resurrection, that there is a victory, that this suffering actually is And that continues to the resurrection. And today we celebrate the fact that it was a victory. That though it may have seemed very sad, and was very sad, that sadness was a victory over sin, the death, and the devil. And Jesus did not stay dead. But he is risen. He is risen indeed. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told him shall they see, And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, 
neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the son of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We have been going through the book of Matthew, and we've come to this section. And Matthew is showing that Jesus has authority. And he pauses in the midst of that demonstration of authority through miracles to explain some of the miracles as well as the implications of that authority for those who would wish to follow him. And it is then a necessity to talk about a little bit why continue on in the same book on Easter Sunday. It is customary, and I mean not customary, there are some pastors who do take time away from their book series, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm sure there will come a time in which I do take a break in order to celebrate the holiday with a specific text. But this text seems to fit the celebration of Easter, Easter weekend as a whole, the resurrection that he is risen, that he is risen indeed. Because it talks about the implications and the demand of what happens when we celebrate on Easter weekend. It comments or based off of this quotation of Isaiah 53 on what Jesus did on the cross, at this point what he will do. And then bases, uses that as the base and ground for the call to follow. And so it teaches us what the implications for our lives are that Easter weekend happened, that there is a death and resurrection to celebrate. And so it begins Matthew 8, 16 through 17. And when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Father, I do ask that you would help us today. Help us to understand these words, the whole of this passage, and to respond in worship, to respond in faith, to respond with commitment and obedience. I ask that we would recognize Easter is not just a fun day to celebrate, but as the call for commitment in our entire lives. Whatever that looks like for each individual person here. 
I pray that there are some here who have never made the commitment in the first place, who have never trusted in Christ, don't understand why Easter is such a big deal. May they understand it today. And may they commit to you. May they repent and believe and be saved. And as there are many in this room who have done that, may we also be reminded that we are called to an allegiance, that we are called to keep on serving you and obeying you in all things. And so, Lord, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus, crucified for us, In the work of J.K. Rawlings, the Harry Potter series, there is this particular species called house elves. And they are subjected to slavery by the witches and wizards, always doing the bidding, never really treated completely right. Over the course of the book series, Harry frees one kind of tricks the master into freeing that house elf named Dobie. And though he is free, and he enjoys freedom, consistently trying to find all the different clothes that he can wear, he's also incredibly loyal. He's more loyal to Harry than he ever was to his actual master. Tries to go above and beyond to help Harry out whenever there is a situation. He's been rescued by Harry, and so he wants to serve Harry. And this he does, even at the risk of his own life, even when it's inconvenient, even though there's no direct, clear, immediate reward for being on the side of someone who is being pressured at all times. Now, obviously, it's an imperfect analogy. Harry is a sinner. He does wrong. And he didn't really sacrifice too much to save Dobie. But the response that Dobie has, looking at that deliverance and wanting to be so extremely loyal to him, coming to him whenever there is a need, is the type of loyalty, devotion, and service that we are called to if we have been rescued. And it's even more the case given the cost of that rescue for Jesus and what he has done. That which we celebrate on Easter weekend, we rightly celebrate, but it demands our commitment and allegiance all the time. Not just on Sundays, but every day. And we'll see this in the two scenes that Matthew places before us. The first is that the suffering servant takes our illnesses. That's verses 16 to 17. And verse 16 begins like this. When the even was come, they brought with him many that were possessed with devils, 
And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. We've seen other summaries of miracles before, where many were brought unto Jesus who were sick or who were under the influence of demons, these evil spirits, fallen angels. And so we aren't surprised that he heals them, that those with severe need, not too severe of a need for him to work. And here it specifically then calls attention to the fact that he cast out the spirits with his word. And that has been something Matthew has been emphasizing. If we read back Matthew 8, 8 through 10, we see Matthew pointing out that Jesus' word carries with it the authority of the word of God. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. So here a centurion had come to Jesus, said, My dear servant is lying sick. He's figuratively been thrown onto a bed. And in that state, I want you to heal him. So Jesus says, I will come, and I will do that. The centurion says, no, you don't need to come, and I don't want you to come. I don't feel worthy of you coming. But if you say the word, he will be healed. Which is then what happens. So the, the word of God, uh, the word of Jesus has this authority as the word of God. And we are brought back to mind of that reality as he heals all who are sick and casts out the demons with a word. But we are told that right here in this summary for the purpose of verse 17. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And we've seen this formula before, the last time in 4.14. And we've even started to see that this phrase doesn't necessarily mean a complete fulfillment has happened at that time, but at least the beginnings of the fulfillment that Christ would enact has occurred. And such is the case here. This was done to begin to fulfill the words of Isaiah, that he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. We have read it already today. We're going to go ahead and turn there again and read it again. This is Isaiah 53, 4. It is this fourth servant song in which the innocent servant, now identified in Matthew as Jesus Christ, comes to bear the sins of sinful Israel and indeed sinful man, so that those who believe can have everlasting life. He says, 
In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a lot here that communicates and talks to us about the bearing of the punishment of our sin. How he in his own body bore our sins on the tree. But verse 4 talks in a different direction. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And there's sometimes an impulse to read verse 5 and read it back into verse 4. And thus take these griefs, these sicknesses, these sorrows and infirmities and weaknesses, and take them as metaphorically referring to sin. But that doesn't seem to make sense then of why Matthew could quote it as being begun to be fulfilled in the healing's ministry. Because there Jesus literally is taking weaknesses and sicknesses and taking them away from the people. Yet there would still be a connection if this is literal between verses 4 and verses 5. If we think back to Genesis 1, we think back to that foundation of the whole Bible, God created all things. He spoke his word, and they all came to be. And as he spoke his word, he ultimately declared that it was all very good. There was no sickness, no grief, no sorrows, no infirmities. Man was thrusted in a garden to work and to keep, to worship God. And we weren't plagued with any sickness, weakness, or sorrow. But then the serpent comes along. Then the sickness comes in because we mess it up. Do we have all of the great gifts of God with the trees and of the of the trees in the garden, so much fruit to eat, and yet the snake tells us this one tree that we're not allowed to eat, it's really the best one. We really should take from it. And Adam and Eve believe him. Take from that fruit. And then subject the whole world to sickness. In order to bear any sickness, this suffering servant would have to first bear with the sin and take away the sin that caused that sickness. And so we move from he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows to he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities because it's not just the sin of Adam and Eve. We all, like sheep, 
have gone astray. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and are worthy of the type of punishment we see at the cross. Worthy of being separated from God forever. Never to be in his presence or among any of his good gifts that we still experience in this broken world with sickness. It's where we should be. But just as the knife is about to slit our throat, just as we would be about to go into that punishment, God provides a ram. God provides the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and bear their iniquities. He brings Jesus, born, by, born of a woman, born under the law, to live amidst our sickness, to be weak and frail like us, and ultimately to die, drinking the cup of God's wrath against our sin and giving us instead his grace, his love, giving us instead the chance to go free, to worship him, and to have everlasting life to all who believe. And that's the beauty of Easter. The victory of Easter doesn't start on the resurrection. It starts with the fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. It is finished is the cry of victory on the cross. And that cry of victory is then vindicated and culminated in the resurrection. Death cannot hold him. The stone table is broken. And that's then where we are, as sinful men coming to the cross, confronted with a choice of whether we will bear the same suffering and bear it eternally in hell, or whether we'll come Behold the cross and repent of our sin. That is, turn from the wrong things that we do or think and turn to this man, God himself on the cross, and believe that he paid the penalty and we can have life through him. It's the offer before all of us here today. An offer that we could talk more specifically about after service. You could do it with people around you. You could do it with me. The chance of eternal life. Because he bore our sicknesses and our sins. But moving back to Matthew. What this then means in the beginnings of the fulfillment of him bearing our iniquities, means that these healings point forward 
to the time of a new creation, which are the iniquities of all, that the infirmities of all who have believed are taken away. And it's based then on the reality of him dying on the cross, bearing our sins that caused those infirmities in the first place. And it is that reality that he bore our sins that then becomes the basis, makes the rest of our passage make any sense at all. Because it's only after Dobie is rescued that he has any allegiance to Harry. I mean, he does have a little bit of trying to help Harry. But the reality of his entire life being built around, if Harry is in trouble, I'm there, comes only after the rescue comes. And so, too, our commitment to him, this commitment that's even greater than Dobie's to Harry, comes after we have been rescued by him. The cost of following that suffering servant begins in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. As we have seen in Matthew, Jesus' miracles and teaching, his authority has attracted quite a crowd. There are multitudes around him, but now it's time for Jesus to depart from those multitudes, get a little bit of rest. So he seeks to depart to the other side, but he's interrupted before he quite does. There are two people, two disciples, who want to go with him to the other side. And the first is described in verses 19 through 20 in this way. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, the, the scribe's promise in verse 19 is significant. It sounds exactly like what you would want from a disciple of Jesus. It's almost a blank check. I don't need to know where we're going. I will go with you wherever you go. And given what we've seen so far, it makes sense that you would need that type of reality. Because they've gone around all Galilee, 4.23, into the mountain and down from the mountain in 5.1 and 8.1, and into Capernaum, verse 5 of this chapter. And now they're departing to the other side of the tree. The disciples seem to be on the move because Jesus is on the move. And he understands that, and there's a promise. But even still... Jesus feels a need to clarify the call to sacrifice, the cost that this scribe needs to consider. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Foxes and birds, they set up shop 
they make a home. They have then that home as a consistent place of security. The birds of the air lay their eggs, provide worms to their younglings in that nest. It's a secure place, a comforting place. Yet the ministry of Jesus doesn't have that same luxury, can't confirm to have it all the time. The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. The point is not necessarily that he's penniless, that he's homeless, and it's not necessarily all the time that he doesn't have comforts and luxuries, as he was in verses 14 to 15 at Peter's house, enjoying the hospitality of the recently healed mother-in-law. But it does mean that that type of luxury is not guaranteed. They are on the move. They don't have a consistent place that they will go home to every night. They'll travel. They'll spend some of that time under the open air. The luxury and security of home is a luxury not always given. It also perhaps highlights the insecurity faced as hostility grows more and more. That there is not a direct place where they know they will not be mistreated, will not be rebelled, rebuked, persecuted. Following Jesus is not safe and it's not convenient, but it's worth it. And it's worth it because he bore our sins. Because he took our sins upon himself on the tree and died so that we could have life, so that we could be with him. And so that means even though it may be inconvenient, even though it might be dangerous to our jobs at times, it's worth it to daily fight against sin. It's worth it to look at the areas in our life where we're being tempted towards something that's not moral and fight against it. To strive for obedience to Him. It's worth the scheduling difficulties of being around the people of God. It's worth those sacrifices and costs. And so Jesus claims that absolute authority over this certain scribe, and then we keep going. It's another disciple in verse 21. We read there, and another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Verse 21. Lord. It's a very honored title. 
could even have a very divine emphasis to it. This disciple understands something of his authority and respects him with this title. And then he makes a reasonable request. Let me first go and bury my father. Let me fulfill my familial duties. Duties that Jesus elsewhere affirms. Duties that we can even see on display in the passage already referenced of verses 14 to 15, where Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And Peter still has that relationship with his family. But though he doesn't want to make the familial duties non-existent, he also doesn't want them to be preeminent. And so we don't know for certain what's going on with these two things. The point is clear. Following Jesus is our greatest priority. And so Jesus' proverb in verse 22, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Enough with your excuses. Come, commit to me. Come to learn from me, Jesus says. True discipleship is without hesitation or reservation. Here, this this man wants leave to do something else that he thinks is more important than following Jesus. And Jesus wants to let him know, following me, being my disciple, is the most preeminent duty. There is no statement Jesus gives about how we have more important things to take care of. He doesn't seem to give occasion to say that we need to wait until something else happens. But rather, he who bore our sins has the right to reorient our priorities around him and to do so immediately. As would have been common when I was in school, there's no comment about waiting until after you get out of college. Hitting closer to home, there's no discussion about waiting until you're out of retirement. Until your health gets completely porked out, obviously there are times when health does get in the way of certain acts. There's no room even for saying, I will obey Christ after I accomplish this particular service at the church in blank and blank way. Now, the reorienting of the priorities around Christ should be immediate because he has borne our sins. He has rescued us. And upon that rescue of him saying, it is finished, come, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Commit yourself to Jesus. Follow after him. But then, again, it moves on. In verse 23, Jesus enters into the ship, and he does depart into the other side. And in neither of these instances, we don't know how the disciples responded. 
We don't know whether this certain scribe who said, I will follow you wherever you go, then decided, yeah, I can be without a place to lay my head. I'll still follow. We don't know whether this disciple decided, yes, following you is my preeminent duty. I will come now. Matthew doesn't direct us to know how they responded because he wants us to question rather how we will respond. What we do with this challenge to wholehearted, immediate allegiance and commitment to Christ. Whether we're ready to give it all to the one who gave it all for us. Father, I do thank you that we do have this opportunity, having been delivered through your very precious and great promises, having Christ having borne our sins, to be able to follow you, and for it to be so significant of a reality that you are able to reorient our priorities around it, to serve you and to be loyal because of the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to do that more today. Help us to respond to this resurrection weekend, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the commanding force in our life, controlling all of the decisions that we make. And I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?